These are Nebraska corn farmers. They work in acres, not hours, harvesting the energy and climate solutions the world needs. We are proud to stand with you. The success of tomorrow's soy industry depends on the actions we take today. The future is here, and the time to move is now. Market Journal Television for Agricultural Business Decisions is a presentation of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources in partnership with the Nebraska Rural Radio Association. Promotional support provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine and partial funding provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Hi everyone, I'm Bryce Duskit and thank you so much for joining us today on Market Journal. Well, here we are now midway through the month of December. On today's show, we'll discuss what cattle producers should be paying attention to as we near the end of the year. Drones have become a popular tool for ag producers. We'll have a look at some of the large ones that were on display at this year's Nebraska Ag Expo. Plus, Darren Newsom's going to be stopping by here in a bit to give us his two cents when it comes to the grain markets. That is all straight ahead on Market Journal, but first. For a century now, propane has been the quiet workhorse of rural America, serving diverse purposes. In today's agricultural landscape, its role has significantly expanded. At this year's Husker Harvest Days, we found out some of the reasons why. Market Journal producer Mike Straub joins us with those details. Propane plays a large role in agricultural places, especially those that get freezing temperatures in the winter, to heat agricultural buildings as well as greenhouses. Propane grain dryers can remove the same amount of moisture from harvested grain while using half the thermal energy as previous older models. Most folks around the farm understand kind of what we do as far as uh, very traditional types of things. You know, grain drying is a big, big user of propane this time of year across the Midwest. Uh, as it gets colder though, we see building heat uh, for livestock and greenhouses uh, really pick up. Uh, and I think the reason we see that, it's clean, it's affordable, it's available, and we don't see any fuel conditions. So guys that are using uh, possibly propane for irrigation that may not need it in a particular area that year, don't have to worry about the fuel condition. So uh, that propane can stay there indefinitely and stay in condition. Uh, I think that makes it very unique in the fuel and energy space. Propane generators and solar panels are found to be a good partnership. If a solar power isn't providing enough energy, the propane generator will kick in to pick up the slack. We are seeing propane generators being paired with those uh, systems more and more uh, across the U.S. So, uh, for instance, in California, we're seeing a lot of solar and propane power generators being paired along with battery. So when we don't have enough power, we don't have enough sunlight, we don't have enough wind power, that propane generator kicks on and produces enough power very affordably. Propane is a greener alternative when compared to natural gas and other types of fuel because of its efficiency, non-toxicity, and low emission output. Propane is being used more often in organic farming. Grain drying is the biggest one across the U.S. It's the biggest one in my market in the ag space. Um, it's also the most variable fuel use in the ag space as well. Uh, some years we use a lot for grain drying, others we don't. One thing that we do see in organic farms that's becoming more and more uh, accepted is using propane for weed flaming and, and weed eradication. So we've got uh, toolbar type applications 
Some of them are made right here in the state of Nebraska, and uh, those devices are used to have a, an open flame, essentially burn the weed, kill the weed, uh, and it qualifies and, and is certified for organic. Irrigation engines help farmers keep their crops hydrated. New propane field engines are even cleaner and more efficient than older machines and offer high-tech features like remote monitoring and control systems. I think there's some very obvious things that we can point people towards as far as, you know, cost if uh, folks are looking at an irrigation engine. That irrigation engine on propane is going to be considerably cheaper than a diesel-based engine. So I think the upfront cost, the uh, operational cost of that is going to be cheaper as well. Our fuel is very cheap compared to uh, diesel or gasoline today. And we're seeing propane uh, really come to benefit as well when you're comparing it to the electric grid. Uh, electric prices continue to escalate, so we're seeing propane even in the irrigation space where a big percentage of the uh, irrigation is electric when you look at it nationally. We're becoming almost the uh, fuel of choice from a cost standpoint in that regard. Propane burns cleanly and efficiently with 11% fewer greenhouse gas emissions than diesel and 24% less than gasoline. It makes for an excellent fuel source for heating both your buildings and water supply for your plant animal containment facilities. It doesn't degrade like other fuels, making it perfect for backup generators. Reporting for Market Journal, I'm Mike Straub. Thank you for the story, Mike. If you're interested in learning more about ways you can utilize propane in your home and on your operation, you're encouraged to visit propane.com for all the answers. Shifting gears now, we delve into some of the efforts to champion beef consumption. The Beef Checkoff is constantly reminding consumers that beef is indeed what's for dinner. At the helm of this initiative is Greg Haynes, Chief Executive Officer for the Cattlemen's Beef Promotion and Research Board. Our recent conversation with him offers insights into the past year's endeavors and the board's strategic vision moving forward. Well, let's get an update when it comes to the Beef Checkoff. Joining us is Greg Haynes. He is the Chief Executive Officer of the Cattlemen's Beef Board. As we go back and remind our listeners of the basics of the checkoff, you guys have been around for quite some time. How do you continue to evolve in the funding that's allocated? Yeah, no, we've been around since 1985. So the Beef Checkoff was started in the 1985 Farm Bill. Uh, it went into effect in 1986. We started collecting dollars and had a referendum after that. I think probably most people know, but it's set up so that every time an animal is sold, the dollar is collected, half of that dollar stays in the state at that state beef council for use there, and the other half comes up to national. So we work on that national side to do you know, marketing, promotion, research, to build demand for beef, and then we work very closely with the state beef councils on leveraging all this and tying it together. Uh, but like I said, yeah, it's been around for a while. There's some misperceptions on the program. Uh, but also what we've seen is, you know, in 1985, it was a dollar per head. Now we're in 2023 and it's still a dollar a head. So one of the challenges that uh, that dollar now is really only worth about 35 cents in that purchasing power that we have. So just making sure that we continue to be very efficient and effective with it and get the, the biggest bang for the buck that we can. Some of your detractors will say, I don't see anything about the beef checkoff. <laughs> Perhaps the reason is because uh, if you're a cattle producer, you're not necessarily the target market of trying to drive more beef demand. But who is that? Uh, yeah. In 2023, where are you trying to build demand right now? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. We hear that a lot. Like, I don't see anything that's going on with the checkoff. You know, before when you'd advertise you know, on TV or whatever, there was three stations. So that was kind of your options. But now with social media, you can be very, very specific on who you are reaching out to. So beef producers aren't gonna see it because we're really targeting those consumers, especially in like high population areas. Um, 
that are purchasing the beef. So this could be housewives, you know, the, the younger generation too, as they are starting their families and, you know, going out and shopping and looking for fun things that they can cook and, and do at home. Those are really the people that we're reaching out to. And so they're also very tech savvy, you know, they have their cell phones. And so they're the ones that as they're shopping, they can be getting messages right in store that say, hey, here's how you can cook this beef cut or here's some some ideas on what to do. And so that helps them make those decisions and purchase it right then at the store. Yeah. Grilling is cool again for, yep. for a lot of people. You got the smokers, people got a fancy setup and they want yeah. to find the right meat to put on the grill. Exactly. Obviously the price of beef has gone up. How do you how do you market to consumers knowing that the dollar for them, like it is with the checkoff, doesn't go quite as far as it previously did? Yeah, and that's always the challenge. I mean, we've had inflation with this. As, as you know, cattle numbers are low right now, so our supply of beef is low, which makes prices higher. But I think where we're at in the environment now really shows the benefit of the checkoff. So if you look at that demand for beef, that demand is incredibly strong now, even with those higher prices. So consumers are paying more for beef, but they're continuing to do that. And that's because they know that it's a great tasting, healthy, you know, enjoyable protein to eat. And so they're making it their choice of the center of plate. And so that's something that just doesn't happen overnight. It's not like the checkoff can come in and say, hey, start buying beef and everybody will. It takes years and years of like working with the consumers to make sure that they've got that trust in the product. And that's what we're seeing now. Again, I mean, to me, this is the hugest, um, you know, testament to how impactful the checkoff is, is the, this demand for beef that we have right now. Where's the checkoff headed in 2024? What are you most looking forward to? Yeah, it's so hard. There's always like so many different programs that are going on. But I think, you know, as we talk with higher prices, having that pulse on what the consumer's concerns are and what they're doing is going to be important. So we have a lot of that kind of consumer tracking and then tying that into the messaging that goes forward with them is key. Um, a new campaign has started kind of tied under the beef it's what's for dinner, which is together we bring more. And that kind of plays on the whole fact that when you're out to celebrate or there's something you know exciting it's like you celebrate with beef and so it's like why not celebrate all the little small day-to-day -day things with beef you know so this really kind of gets it out there and, and shows the enjoyment and the way to to just have fun and enjoy every day with beef so i see i think these things are coming up we've got great programs with um, stem teachers who are educating their students especially in like high population areas on agriculture and how science and technology are in it. And so this is becoming a part of the curriculum. So these kids who've never seen a cow in real life can now learn more about this and be a little bit more in touch with agriculture and, and beef production. So I think a lot of exciting things going on. Thanks to Greg for taking the time to sit down with us while we were down in Kansas City. The Cattlemen's Beef Promotion Research Board, they have 101 different members. If you'd like to learn more about this organization, perhaps you want to be one of the 101 that serve beef producers, you can visit beefboard.org. Up next, let's check in on the grain markets. Joining the program earlier, earlier this week was Darren Newsom. We began by reviewing the latest activity when it comes to the corn, soybeans, and wheat markets. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, we've got three major markets and they're all doing different things. Uh, we've got corn just continuing to grind lower. There's no reason for anyone to want to buy uh, at this point. There's plenty of corn to go around. We could see that in spreads. We could see it in basis. Uh, so, you know, right now it's just kind of, again, it, it, as I was told a long time ago by a floor, uh, someone on the floor, you know, it's easier for a market to drift down than up. And that certainly seems to be what corn's doing. On the other hand, we've got uh, we've got increasing demand this time of year. Uh, for the soybeans, uh, for U.S. soybeans, the problem is it's not enough uh, to get to, to get things rolling, at least get things caught up to where it needs to be. But, you know, occasionally we still see those bursts. We saw it this past Monday when the market was able to rally 30 cents uh, and that, uh, that, that led uh, some announcements of new sales. So, I mean, there's still business being done, but again, it's just not enough. And over in the wheat, really the only thing that we've got going on that's pushing soft red winter wheat higher right now, uh, it, the funds held an incredibly large net short position. And they've been covering that of late. Okay, of course, right now, South America weather is on the, the forefront of what's happening in the markets. And it seems like as new forecasts come out, the, the markets seem to trade that information quite quickly. See some wild swings because of it. Is that a fair assessment, Darren? That's a fair assessment. I mean, soybeans, I mean, all, all of these markets that we talk about are weather derivatives. And just right now, it's, it's soybeans turn to stand in the spotlight. Uh, and again, it's not U.S. weather, it's South American weather. And just like we see here in the summertime, uh, you know, in the, in the North American summer, you know, we see what wild price swings, and that's exactly what we're getting as forecasts. You know, first they're putting what first they're putting uh, precipitation in, then they're taking it out, temperatures up and down and sideways and everything else. And, and the markets reflect that. So on top of, you know, the overnight buying that we tend to see uh, in, in the soybean market, we, you know, the rest of the session, the rest of the day is dealing with these changing weather forecasts. Okay, back on soybeans, when it came to our domestic supply here, and as we look at demand exports. We've been 18 to 20 percent behind our pace that we had last year. You say it's not enough. What are you watching when it comes to exports of and demand that is for soybeans? First thing we really need to see is our is our total sales to go up. And in uh, in in the la in last week's uh, weekly export sales and shipments update, uh, we saw where total sales total U.S. sales were running 18 percent behind the previous for the same week the previous marketing year. Shipments also 16 to 18 percent behind. We followed that up with this past Monday's weekly export inspections. Still totals down 18 percent for the year. So we've got to see that improve. And you know the problem is we're still stuck in a in a, in a trade war with the world's largest buyer. And you know, I was at a meeting a number of years ago where you know some analysts uh, who look at the China, uh, look at China and the Chinese situation, you know, the pencil was being put to the paper at that point. You know, taking U.S. out of the equation as much as possible, and that's certainly the way it's played out. You know, the U.S. Is, can't really consider itself a major player in the U.S. In the, I mean, the global soybean market anymore. It's all about China. It's all about Brazil, and only if Brazil has a weather problem does uh, does the world's largest buyer get interested in U.S. supplies again. So to that point, Darren, do we catch up for soybean exports at this point, or are we just going to be lagging behind the rest of the year? I think if we're going to catch up, it's going to actually be a later than normal move. Usually it's between, you know, it's just six months between September and February when the U.S. does most of its shipping. This time around, what we've seen seasonally as far as a change goes, it all depends on what happens with Brazilian weather. If their crop by the time we get to February, March isn't as large as expected and, and uh, the world's largest buyer has already you know, booked most of it and it's already getting ready to be shipped at some point. Uh, and then they just, you know, only if there's not enough uh, coming out of Brazil, do they get interested in the U.S.? So we could see a later than normal round of buying, meaning that we may not see those export sales. We may not see those export shipments to get us back up to near normal uh, until after the February time frame. 
Okay, Darren, well, let's get to a couple of viewer questions that came in this week. Of course, we always like to solicit those, solicit those and, and pitch them your way. We start with Richard on Twitter. He wrote in, noting historically U.S. corn and soybean future markets peak in late June, early July before beginning their descent to the harvest low. He says, with Brazil harvest become a major player, does that correlate to late December, early January? Noting another uh, futures peak for the same crops. Your thoughts? Yeah, it was a great question from my friend Richard, and I really appreciate him sending it in. And I, I immediately went to my seasonal studies. I didn't look at the futures market because sometimes those can get skewed. So I pulled up the bar chart national corn and national soybean price indexes and looked at their seasonal tendencies. And yes, they we, we still see those highs, uh, say in the summertime, you know, late May, early June, um, possibly out into July. But his question was, and, and I would rephrase it a little bit, Brazil is the major player, and, and the question mark uh, would, would be on the U.S. these days. Uh, but as far as Brazil being the major player, we haven't seen a seasonal change. We haven't seen that December top uh, in the market. In fact, you know, both cash indexes show a relatively solid uptrend you know, from the time we, we, we get into the winter, uh, winter season up through the spring, early summer. So we don't see that seasonal top in December that we do in the, uh, in the North American summertime. Darren, appreciate your thoughts on that. Also want to get to Jeff. He wrote in on, wrote in on email, said the local elevator is offering a fair price, in his opinion, for wheat for next September. He's never contracted gain that grain that far out before. He wants to know, is it worth locking in? Two things. Number one, I will never tell somebody. If it's a good price, I'm, I, I won't tell them to not sell. I know that's a double negative. Uh, but if it's a good price, we're going to want to do a little bit. The second thing is it's wheat. We never really know what our production is going to be. So if I'm going to start locking it in this early, I'm going to be pretty conservative on what my estimate for, for yield is going to be. Uh, again, it depends on where it is. It uh, depends on what the soil moisture situation is. Uh, but I, you know, certainly if, if it looks good uh, and historically it's a good price, Lock in a little bit. Don't go overboard. Now, next week, we'll be joined by Kyle Bumstead as we discuss the cattle markets. As always, you heard me invite your questions here on the show. Go ahead and email us or get in touch on social media. If you have a question for Kyle, I'll be sure to pass your question along. Each fall, you know this, more than 90,000 fans pour into Memorial Stadium for football Saturday. Amidst the stadium's charged atmosphere, there is the consumption of a lot of food. A staggering 600 pounds of popcorn kernels pop alongside 13,500 runzas, 21,000 slices of pizza, and nearly 14,000 sizzling hot dogs. In the December issue of the Nebraska Farmer, you can uncover the link between these fans and the farmers who feed their game day appetites. You'll discover how the love for football merges with the agricultural pulse of Nebraska. That, of course, resonates far beyond the field. Check that out in this month's Nebraska Farmer. Well, it is once again time to check in on weather with Nebraska Extension Ag Climatologist and Market Journal Chief Meteorologist Eric Hunt. Eric, what's on your mind and what's in the forecast as we near the end of the year? Well, thanks, Bryce. We've had a mild December so far. That will continue for next week. I am watching a possible storm that might be moving into our part of the country right around Christmas. More of that in a little bit. Through the week ahead, I think we will have a cold front moving through the state later in the day on Sunday. That should bring us more seasonal temperatures on Monday with highs mostly in the 30s and 40s. Uh, again, nothing significantly cold, but probably a bit colder than we have been having. As we move into the middle of the later portion next week, we'll be dominated by upper level ridging as is shown in both the European and GFS models. Thanks to Eric Snodgrass and Nutrien for these uh, figures. Uh, this will lead to mild and dry conditions for most of next week. Again, I don't think we're talking about record warmth, but generally speaking, highs in the 40s to maybe low to mid 50s uh, as we head from Wednesday into Friday. 
Uh, and I think this will lead to very good holiday travel weather as we head into later portion next week. What I am watching though is a potential for a storm system that should be entering the western U.S. by the end of next week. It might be swinging into our area by Christmas Day. The CPC right now currently is showing a uh, decent projection of above average precipitation across pretty much the entire state and a lot of the western U.S. as we move into the week of Christmas. Again, this is still a ways out, but I think it's something worth watching. Uh, current indications are this would be mostly a rain event for most of the state, except for portions of north central Nebraska and northwestern Nebraska. But again, any shift in that track or any additional cold air or anything really dynamic would lead to potential for some snow. So there is a very outside shot that there could be a white Christmas for some of the state this year, even with our relatively mild conditions. Again, the CPC is uh, very bullish on the, basically the entire U.S. being warm for the week of Christmas, in particular the north central U.S. Again, I think those to be more on the front-loaded side for Christmas as opposed to after, but again, I don't think we're looking at any real significant cold intrusions before the first of the year. Moving update, we did see some introduction of abnormal dryness into parts of southwestern Nebraska, in particular Frontier, Hitchcock, and Red Willow counties. Uh, it's been quite dry down there for most of the fall, and the authors did introduce some abnormal dryness. Uh, but in general, we are in much better shape than we were a year ago. And one of the reasons that we've seen the drought is, again, precipitation deficits. Uh, so going back four years, we actually have 20-plus inch deficits over a very large section of the central U.S. Uh, in the parts of eastern Nebraska and western Iowa, those uh, deficits are in excess of 30 inches. Uh, it's a bit more of the exception uh, than the rule, but we are seeing some parts of the state uh, that over a four-year period have basically had a deficit of one year's worth of precipitation. So again, very significant stuff going back to about the first part of 2020. Uh, in terms of more recent precipitation, we have seen some precipitation uh, in southwestern Nebraska. This is good news, so this was not reflected in the latest drought monitor, uh, and I don't know this is enough to move the needle, but again, this is good news for a place that hasn't seen much moisture in the last couple of months. Most rest of the state has been very dry in the last seven days, as has been the case for most of the month so far. Soil temperatures right now, generally speaking, across the state are in the low to mid-30s, which is where they have been for most of the month of December. We have yet to see any prolonged uh, freezing of the soils at this point. Soil moisture is kind of where it has been, driest uh, in terms of per percentiles where you expect compared to normal, mostly in southeastern Nebraska, southwestern Nebraska, north central Nebraska is in much better shape. And in terms of current U.S. snow cover, uh, the extent of snow cover in the U.S. right now is the lowest it's been at this time of year since 2006. Uh, with the uh, decent snowpack in parts of Rockies, but most places right now, no real snow cover. Thanks. Back to you, Bryce. All right. Thank you very much for the update, Eric. We appreciate it. Finally today, at this year's Nebraska Ag Expo, there was more new tech than most would know what to do with. Drones in particular were out in full force and on display as producers continued to consider this technology that's certainly starting to take flight. Market Journal's Bill Dodd caught up with a couple of the companies that are helping producers learn the ropes of DIY aerial spraying and scouting. From checking cattle to irrigation pivots, scouting weeds and early stand assessments. Over the last several years, the number of applications for drone technology have increased significantly in the agricultural community. The latest application to hit the market is spraying crops. While operating a drone isn't the most difficult task in the world, there are several steps producers must take beyond just buying the equipment. At this year's Nebraska Ag Expo, there were a number of vendors who were ready and able to help producers get educated, licensed, and ready to fly. Well, first of all, you need to know what you're going to be doing with it. So are you going to be flying it at your own place? Are you going to be using it as a custom application business? Or are you going to be doing a little bit of both? So as people would come to us and they'd tell us what they're doing, we would map out which drone best suits them, what drones and what tools may or may not help them. 
They'd come get a quote, they would buy the drone. We'd then have resources for them to do customer training with us, and we help them get all their licensing and everything they need to do to go fly. Our main goal at Agrispray is to help them not only buy a drone, but to help them with the drone through every step of the process. When you compare the cost of running diesel-powered equipment over an entire field, in contrast to utilizing drones to scout spots where spraying is most needed and treating them with near pinpoint accuracy, the savings can really add up. However, there are also several other benefits to the producer beyond cost of operation when compared to traditional ground and aerial applications. Traditional spraying and aerial spraying are kind of two different things. If you can legally spray that chemical aerially, then we recommend using the drone for that. With a drone, you can get down in the canopy further and it'll spread out the crop more with prop wash and it'll actually penetrate down into that near the ground further than what you'd see otherwise. Um, and this gives the farmer the ability to do it on their own and not rely on a plane or helicopter or other methods to um, come do it for them. While empowering farmers to take aerial spraying into their own hands, drones have also created a new market for custom applicators. The most important thing to remember if you're considering making a purchase of this magnitude is ensuring that it can generate a return on your investment. While owning and operating your own equipment is ideal, it may be more cost effective in the short term to hire a custom applicator. Uh, we tell guys we don't suggest buying one unless you can make it pay for itself. And that means in totality for all costs, right? A lot of people want to change those cost structures, but we see a two to three year payback anything more than that and that's where we come in with a custom application and say hey for now until these things either advance more you might be a better fit for custom application the big savings in this though is in the timing the application window for fungicide is so tight that even us um, anyone from a custom perspective getting the planes and the choppers or even the drone crews there when you want them to get that timing window exactly when you need to spray that corn is so difficult that this puts that power right back into the farmer's hands. You know, so we, we don't really convince people that they need it. We can just show them the math and show them what we do with it. Um, and if, you know, th that's where the custom app business comes in. Uh, you know, if someone wants to, tr maybe they want to try 100 acres out of 1,000 that they farm and see what kind of results they get. For the time being, it seems that agricultural drone spraying is no passing fad. Like any new technology, as drones continue to develop and evolve, these products will inevitably become more cost effective and the possibilities for precision agriculture will continue to be cultivated. Reporting from the 2023 Nebraska Ag Expo, I'm Bill Dodd. Good stuff there, Bill. Kind of fun to see the big drones out there at the show. Of course, we had a good time bringing you last week's Market Journal episode from the Nebraska Ag Expo as we focused on all the new technology that was on display. As a reminder for you, if you missed it, you can go back and view that episode by visiting the Market Journal YouTube channel. That is going to do it for this week's broadcast. We hope to see you back here next time. But until then, I'm Bryce Duskit, wishing you a safe and productive week.
join Market Journal online at marketjournal.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Market Journal is produced by the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources.